Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Disease contaminated their ship. Any moment, one of them might become infected and spray lethal sparks to the others. There was no cure, except prevention. And that meant three spacemen left to die. And Tad, like other young men, looked to the spaceways for adventure. But George Barlow, like other fathers, knew that disaster would end his wanderlust. We've got two short science fiction stories for you again today on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast with at least one Lost Science Fiction short story in every episode. The Lost Sci-Fi Podcast is growing every week with new listeners around the world. And even though we're only two months old, ListenNotes.com says the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast is in the top 5% of all podcasts worldwide. You did that, and we thank you. Please continue to share the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, and it would be awesome if you'd be kind enough to rate and review us on whatever app you use to listen to the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast. As always, we welcome your questions and suggestions. Scott at LostSciFi.com. Our first author, Russell Robert Winterbotham, was born on August 1st, 1904 in Salina, Kansas, population 6,000 or so when he was born. He began writing short fiction in 1935 and continued until 1958 with a short break from the mid-40s to the early 50s. In all, he wrote almost 60 short stories that were published in If Worlds of Science Fiction, Imagination Stories of Science and Fantasy, Planet Stories, and others. He published stories as Russ Winterbotham and R.R. Winterbotham. His next-to-last novel, Planet Big Zero, released in 1964, is the only known work using the name Franklin Hadley. In France, he was once known as Ross Winterbotham, but that's only because somebody messed up and misspelled his name. If you are old enough, you may remember the Big Little Books, which began in 1935. By the time Russ Winterbotham started writing for Racine, Wisconsin-based Whitman Publishing, they had changed the name to Better Little Books. Winterbotham's first better little book was 1940's Maximo the Amazing Superman, which can be purchased for $50 on abebooks.com. He also wrote Maximo the Amazing Superman and the Crystals of Doom, Maximo the Amazing Superman and the Super Machine, Captain Midnight and the Secret Squadron, and Captain Midnight and the Secret Squadron versus the Terror of the Orient. 
Like last week's author, Joseph Samixon, also known as William Morrison, Winterbotham was a comic strip writer. Chris Welkin Planeteer was distributed by the Newspaper Enterprise Association from 1952 to 1964. It was created by Winterbotham along with cartoonist Art Sansom. Two pilot episodes were created for Chris Welkin Planeteer, but it was never picked up. However, you'll find both episodes on YouTube. Quite the career. From Imagination Stories of Science and Fantasy in September 1954, Three Spacemen Left to Die by Russ Winterbotham. Commander Al Andrews had closed and locked the energy-proof, neutralizing bunkheads against the creeping red glow that infected one quadrant of his circular spaceship. Now he stood in the control center, in the midsection of the revolving wagon-wheel ship, looking at Oki Matthews. There had been times aboard this ship when a whole crew had been comfortable in months-long trips through space. But now there were only three men. Three men fleeing from death, and it was no longer comfortable here because death was breathing down the neck of at least one of them. Oki was intent on the instruments in front of him. Oki was young, with a face that glowed with velvet skin. Even in space, Oki shaved every day, shined his shoes, and pressed his uniform. Al was sloppy, bearded, and ungroomed. But Al had lived most of his fifty years in space. Oki looked up toward Al. His young eyes searched the hard, leathery face of his commander. He saw the grim set to Al's jaw and the hard lines around the older man's eyes. Al was cold, nerveless as a piece of rope. How's Joe? Oki asked. Al shook his head. Last stages, he said. The commander went to a tier of built-in drawers across the room from the control panel. His arm reached out pulled on the third drawer from the bottom. From this drawer, he took an old-fashioned revolver and a box of shells. Not ordinary shells. The bullets were plastic, strong enough to pierce flesh, too soft to rupture the walls of the spaceship. Don't do it, Al, Oki said, watching the commander. Al shook his head. He slipped bullets into the cylinder. We're the last Earthman. Let's not die killing each other pleaded the young man. This thing will catch us all before long. Let's stop fighting it. Joe's our pal. Let him live. We're the last Earthmen, and we're going down fighting, said Al. We fought. For ten years we fought. Now we're in space, Al. So far from the sun, we can't tell it from any other star. There's no Earth women here. Even if we live a few years longer, the strain of earth blood dies with us. We're licked, Al. Let's surrender gracefully. We're earthmen, said Al. We fight. The last earthmen? There's nothing left to fight for. Except life, said Al. Now listen, Oki. I'm still commander. I know what I'm doing. And you take orders from me, or it's mutiny. Yeah, I know the Quinnies have covered the earth. From the Arctic to the tropics, men died shooting sparks like fireworks. But the earth isn't the only planet in the galaxy where men exist. You didn't take that first trip this ship made, did you, boy? Oki laughed. That was ten years ago. I was a kid in high school then. Al flipped the cylinder closed and made sure the gun was ready to use. We went to another system he said. A fluke, maybe. Or maybe the old man planned it. He believed in interstellar travel by dimensional shortcuts. I was third mate, like you. I fingered the controls, and he gave me the figures. Something like a double right angle repeated twice. I was dizzy as hell when I finally put old wagon wheel on a straight course. But after I blinked my eyes a couple times and looked out through a porthole, I knew that the old man was right. There was the cutest little green planet and the nicest, warmest fourth magnitude sun you ever saw. He smiled, and the hard lines disappeared for a moment. Where are we now? 63791, 
at 1,300. I can work it down to 12 decimals, sir, if you want. Never mind. Just watch the instruments. The chronometer lines will tell you when. Al stuffed the revolver under his belt in the front of his trousers. We're going back to that planet, Oki. A pretty little place, soft and warm as a tropical isle. And there were nice-looking people there, human beings like us. Al closed his eyes. Such women, nice round shoulders, soft brown eyes you could spend a lifetime looking into. There was one. Al paused while his fingers seemed to caress the butt of the pistol. She called herself something like Dwia. I taught her to speak English a little. The commander shrugged his shoulders. Maybe you'll find a girl there, Oki. Maybe I'll see mine again. That was ten years ago. He chuckled. She's probably got a husband and six kids now. Al took a step toward the doorway marked C, one of four, each leading to a quadrant of the wagon wheel. Please, sir, said Oki. Don't. Al pulled open the door. Time's getting short, and we can't take the Quinnies to that planet with us. A sweep of centrifugal force caught him as he opened the door. His big, hairy hand caught the rung of a ladder beside the door. Joe went on that trip. He and I were the only ones of the crew that didn't catch the Quinnies the minute we landed back on Earth. We ducked out again, shipping with a new commander with a new crew on old wagon wheel again. We went to Ganymede. Yeah, said Oki. I was cabin boy on that trip. My first space flight. Maybe that's how I escaped the Quinnies, too. Oki glanced at the chronometer. We've still got 55 minutes. Why don't you wait 20 minutes or so? Al heaved a sigh and swung onto the ladder, letting himself down, which was outward, toward the rim of the wheel. I might have trouble, he said. Al put his hands against the bulkhead door. It was cool enough. The death glow wasn't seeping into the ship. The glow itself wasn't the contagious part. It was the sparks that shot from men's bodies. The early stages of the disease were the dangerous ones. For then, the sparks were often too small to be seen. In the latter stages, a man suffering from quinnies gave off his own warning and could be avoided. Al took a small intercom phone from a box beside the doorway. He spoke into it. Joe? A voice came back. Yeah? That you, Commander? Yes, Joe. How do you feel? Like hell, I guess. Funny, though, there's no pain. Just annoying, like the hiccups, and I'm getting weaker. You're in the last stages. <sighs> Maybe... Maybe not. I've heard of guys that live 14 months, shooting sparks worse than I'm doing right now. I'm coming in, Joe. <sighs> Give me a break, Al. I won't come near you or Oki. I'll stay here. There's food, water, everything I need. Just let me live till it starts to hurt. Maybe I'll ask you to come in then. There isn't time, Joe. Besides, it'll be easier this way. You're dying. You're shooting sparks from your hair roots. Something might happen, and Oki and I would come down with the Quinnies. We're the only Earthmen left now, Joe. Don't be too sure. Joe's voice was harsh, like the hissing of sparks. You might have the Quinnies and not know it. You're not in pain? Hell no. I told you I wasn't. But I'm lit up like the 4th of July, Guy Fawkes Day, Bastille Day, and the Chinese New Year. Your brain's a dynamo of energy, Joe. It's shooting quinnies in all directions through every nerve fiber of your body. Are you trying to make it easier or something? I'm trying to make you understand. I've got to kill you. I'm not doing it because I want to. You're my best friend, Joe. We've had a lot of swell times together. But I've got to kill you. Oki and I have to land on the green planet, and we're not taking the Quinnies there with us. You're doing me a favor, huh? Some favor. 
Better make sure you haven't got the quinnies yourself before you try to make like God. I'd know if I had them, said Al. I'm coming in, Joe. I'll kill you first, said Joe, as a favor to myself. Al shot back the bolt. Don't try it, Joe. The commander pulled on the door. It swung open a couple of feet. A bolt of red fire swept through the opening. But Al had expected this, and he was safe behind the neutralizing door. Then Al stepped into the opening. He didn't need light, for Joe was a red glow against the quadrant wall. Joe stood with his feet wide apart, with an aura of fire around his body. Flaming sparks seemed to lick the air to form an outline of a human being. Joe raised his finger toward the commander, and Al didn't wait. He squeezed the pistol's trigger and then stepped back behind the door as flame lashed toward him again. The report of the gun echoed. You murderers! Joe groaned. His body hit the floor with a thud. Al waited, then opened the door again. Joe lay on the floor. No sparks came from his body now. He looked like a sleeping man. Outside, the cherry-red glow of the quadrant ebbed till the sides were black as space. Al put the gun back in the drawer in the control room. He closed it and then sank into a chair beside Oki. The young man said nothing, but kept his eyes glued on the control panel. Finally, Al spoke. Ever take the test, Oki? No, neither did I. Scared I might have it, I guess. But I kept telling myself that I might catch the quinnies from the instrument they used to test you. Anyhow, I know the symptoms. I'd show symptoms if I had the quinnies. Wouldn't I? To know. Joe knew the symptoms. He must have had it for a long time before he began shooting sparks. Oki paused for a moment. We've probably been exposed, Al. Yeah, we've been exposed a thousand times, the commander said. Everybody on this ship except Joe and I died from the Quinnies after we returned from that voyage ten years ago. Everybody else I sailed space with died too, except you. There's some kind of immunity. Maybe we've got it, you and I. The Quinnies isn't like measles or smallpox, Al. Germs and viruses don't cause it. Something goes wrong with life itself. Maybe we should know something about life. Al grinned. But after centuries of finding out about everything else, we don't know what life is. All biologists can tell us is that we're molecules strung together to make cells that produce some sort of energy. If we knew the cause of life, we don't know the cause of anything. We get to one cause and wonder what caused it. We never know the first cause. And if we found it, we'd ask what caused it. Everything goes around in circles. There's the carbon-nitrogen-hydrogen cycle that makes the sun hot. Elements change and get back to where they started, losing just a little energy. That energy goes out into space, loses velocity, and becomes matter. Matter forms suns. Maybe life is part of the merry-go-round. Maybe energy makes matter. Life results from matter. Life produces a little energy. We're generators, huh? Not exactly. Did you ever study a dynamo, Oki? It doesn't make energy. It converts one form into another form, the stuff we call electricity, but it seems to do it intelligently. Supposing your generator makes a kilowatt of power and you're lighting a string of light bulbs with it. There's ten bulbs, each using a hundred watts of power. But some economical so-and-so comes along and turns out five of them. You'd expect the generator to get all fouled up, or maybe burn out some wires. But it goes along at the same speed and makes just five hundred watts of power. No more, no less. Dynamos are like that. They never waste their output. Is that life? In a way, it is, said Al. Like I said, we're not generators, but life may be just a process of making a little energy. We make just enough to keep the merry-go-round going. Then something goes wrong. We start making more than we should. 
We get overcharged like a battery. The energy has to go somewhere, so we start shooting sparks. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Okie laughed. Your theories bypass some of nature's laws, and they would make a logician take to a sick bed. But they sound good. He turned his eyes on the chronometer a moment. What fouls up the safety valve as long as we're mixing metaphors? Maybe we've got more than life, said Al. We've got emotions, consciousness, and a lot of things that life in general doesn't have. But you and I can control our emotions. We're cold-blooded. I just shot a friend, your friend too, and you let me do it. Our cold-blooded common sense told us it was the thing to do. We have to stomp out the quinnies before we land on the green planet. If you get the disease, I'll kill you, just like I killed Joe. If I get it, you'll kill me. No, Commander, I won't. Then I'll kill myself and save you the trouble. But maybe we won't get it. Maybe we're immune for one reason or another. We're not alike, either in temperament or physically. I'm young, Al. You're older. You're a hell of a lot colder-blooded than I am. Hell, I've got emotions. I couldn't do what you did. Organically, we're different, too. My cells may be the same, but they're conditioned differently. I'm allergic to certain kinds of cheese. So are lots of people. I could establish an allergy to the same things you can't take. That shows our chemistry is the same. Oki glanced at the instruments again. Better take over, sir. There's only four minutes left. Al strapped himself into his seat. Oki already had adjusted his harness, and now the two men adjusted their bodies to fit the contours of the chairs that would lessen the punishment of sudden acceleration. The commander gripped the lever that would kick atomic fuel into the rocket chambers. One minute said Oki. Al injected the fuel and then placed his finger over the firing button. Thirty seconds. Twenty. Ten. Five. Four. Three. Two. Both men tensed. One. Zero. Their bodies strained as the ship lurched. Oki counted the seconds with his hand, for he could not talk now. Al squeezed the control button again. This was repeated again and again. Then Al cut the rockets. The pressure on their bodies eased. Both men relaxed. Al unstrapped himself and swung his legs to the floor. He walked toward the porthole. He had to walk carefully, for the centrifugal pitch made the feet like balancing on a turntable. He reached up and adjusted the flaps. Into the room streamed warm sunlight. A glowing orb swung into view as the ship turned on its axis. A moment later, they saw another disk, a bright green disk, a planet hanging in space. We're there, whispered Oki. Al said nothing. His eyes were not on the planet, but on his hand, raised a fraction of an inch from the flap control on the metal wall of the ship writhing like a snake from his fingertips to the wall, was a tiny red spark. Oki turned his eyes from the porthole to the silent commander. He saw the ribbon of flame. 
His body grew tense. Slowly, his hands fingered the buckles on the straps of his G-harness. He unfastened them and sprang to his feet. Al didn't try to stop him as Oki swung across the turntable room toward the tier of drawers. Make it quick, Oki, said Al. Oki opened the drawer, took out the gun, and thrust it into his pocket. Shoot me, Oki. You've got to. We can't take the Quinnies to that planet. I won't. It's mutiny. Give me the gun. I'll kill myself. There's no such thing as mutiny anymore, Al. We're just two men in space, the last Earthmen alive. The problem will solve itself. Oki, we're not going to land on the planet alive. Be yourself. We've made a good fight. We lost. Let's die with a solid piece of ground under our legs. What if we do infect a planet with a plague? There's a thousand planets just like it in the universe. Every man on them will die. If not today, then in a few years from now. What difference does it make? Why should we try to keep the merry-go-round going? Because there's a reason. We don't know what it is. But we've got to live. We've got to die. But we've got to preserve life every second we can. Is that why you want me to kill you? To preserve life? One life doesn't matter. Al pointed to the porthole. It's a whole world of living human beings. People like us. We don't owe them anything. Al pushed himself away from the wall, toward Oki across the room by the tier of drawers. But the reflexes of youth were on Oki's side. The young man's punch caught Al flush on the jaw, and the bearded commander went down. When Al opened his eyes, Oki was decelerating the circular ship into a spiral that would set it down on the planet. Al raised himself on his arms and pulled himself toward the control panel. You can't do this, Oki. You're killing a world. What's that world to us? Al looked at the metal floor plates under his body. The cherry glow was flooding from his body into the plates. Al was gone farther than he thought. For months, he must have been harboring the disease, just as Joe had been ill a long time before realizing it. Al's natural resistance, perhaps strengthened by long years of exposure to the radiations of space, must have held back the final stages until the tide had burst through in an overwhelming flood. Even when Al killed Joe, Al was near the last stages himself. Al remembered Joe's last bid for survival. Joe was much like Oki. Joe had hated to die. He wanted to live, to have soil under his feet again. But the disease had to be wiped out. And Joe had fought with his last weapon, the energy ebbing from his body. The energy. Grim lines appeared deep around Al's eyes. He raised his hand from the floor. His brain throbbed. Yes, his brain was a battery of energy now, the energy of life. And the purpose of life was to preserve life, a single second or a thousand million years. Not one life, but the race. That was the aim of life. Oki, Al's voice hissed. Oki turned from the instrument panel. His eyes focused on the cherry red floor with Al in the center of the glow. Sparks came from Al's mouth as he spoke again. Before I shot Joe, I tried to make him understand. I had to kill him, and I've got to kill you whether you've got the disease or not. It's the way with things. Our individual lives don't mean a plug nickel, but a whole race does. We can't take the Quinnies to the green planet. I told you, they're not people like us, said Oki. They just look like us. Some fish look like snakes. Some mammals look like fish. But they're not fish. But they are like us. I know, said Al. An atom of iron on Sirius is the same as an atom of iron on the sun. Why can't two human cells be the same, even if they're light years apart? You're just guessing. 
I told you, I know. You think you know. You met a girl once. Maybe she had a nice figure and pretty eyes. Your glands got fooled. She was just like an earth girl, only prettier. That's why maybe she was pretty, but that was ten years ago. You're not handsome anymore, and neither is she. She's probably got six kids. You said so yourself. Yes, Oki, maybe six. Maybe only one kid, one that has earth blood in him. My kid, Oki. There's still one more earth man alive in the universe. That's why I'm doing this to you. Al let the energy flow out through his fingertips. A cherry red bolt struck Oki right in the face. On the green planet, a matron and her son were looking up into the stars. The boy cried out in delight. A shooting star, Mommy, he said. Make a wish. Trailing red sparks, the meteor seemed to veer off suddenly and speed away again into space. I wished that your father would return from the skies, said the woman. For a moment, I thought maybe he had. Three Spacemen Left to Die by Russ Winterbotham Winterbotham's writing career came to an end with the 1966 release of his last novel, The Lord of Nardos. He passed away five years later on June 9, 1971, in Bay Village, Ohio. He was 66 years old. We've already heard from our second author, Alan E. Norse. You can hear his short sci-fi story, The 54th of July, on Episode 5 of the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast. From the pages of Imagination Stories of Science and Fantasy, in October 1952, Wanderlust by Alan E. Norse. Somehow, George Barlow had sensed that something was wrong the moment his son drove into the barnyard that evening. He had been waiting impatiently for Tad's return all afternoon. The men needed those tractor bolts before they could do the mowing. But George had felt the uneasiness quite suddenly deep in his chest when he heard the boy's three-wheeler chugging up the rutted country road from town. He sat quietly, waiting, stroking old Snuffy behind the ears. He heard the little motor car pop into silence as Tad drove it into the garage. Then there was a long silence. George waited several minutes before running a hand through his tawny hair. What's that boy doing out there anyway? he growled. Florence Barlow glanced up through the kitchen window. He's gone up on the ridge, she said. He's just standing up there, looking down the valley. She turned back to the stove, pushing back an unruly wisp of graying hair. George sat back in his chair, puffing his pipe, his uneasiness growing. Tad was usually back from town hours earlier. The oats had to be cut this week. The shipment of Venusian taro was due from the next rocket, and they had to have a field free for it. But still, he knew it was more than the tractor bolts that bothered him. Then, suddenly, the door burst open, and Tad was there, filling the room with his broad shoulders, whistling tunelessly to himself. A cool east breeze followed him in the door, and with it, an aura of excitement. Tad's sun-baked hair was wild from the ride through the wind, his sharp eyes sparkling. Dad, the rocket landed this afternoon, out at Dillon's Landing. It's three weeks early this time. A chill swept up George's spine, tingling his scalp. Then we should get the taro in a couple of days, he said smoothly. We should. Tad's eyes were bright as he patted the dog's head. His whole body seemed alive with excitement. I walked up on the ridge to get a look at it, Dad. It's a beauty, tall and slim. You should see it down there. It catches the sunset like you never saw before. He was still talking as he walked out to the kitchen, stooping to kiss his mother on the forehead. You ought to go up and take a look at it, Mom, before the sun's gone. I've got plenty to do without going to gawk at a rocket ship. His mother's voice was sharp. You have two, for that matter. Did you get the tractor bolts for your father? The boy frowned suddenly and snapped his fingers. Plum forgot them. 
The ship was landing just as I got into town, so I went over to watch it. He took his place opposite his father at the table, his face brightening again. He didn't see the cloud on his father's face. And they let us go inside it to look around, Dad. I never saw anything like it. You wouldn't believe that they could get such a ship off the ground. Why, even I can remember when it was all they could do to blast off with a little ten-man ship. And now, why, this one is like a yacht. It's the Star King, the newest one in Dylan's fleet. George Barlow scowled, the tightness in the pit of his stomach suddenly making his food tasteless. That's lovely, he said sourly. They can build them a mile long for all I care. They still aren't fit for rats. At least here you can wash your face if you want to. He turned back to his plate, hoping the discussion was over. Hoping. But this one had complete showers, soft bunks, everything. Hydroponic tanks that make the experimental station look like pikers. Eat, said George. Tad lapsed into silence. The hearty silence of a hungry nineteen-year-old before a full dinner plate. His father took another mouthful and put down his fork, his appetite gone. He could feel the tension growing, the tightness of his breathing. He sensed his wife's apprehension as she, too, slowed and stopped eating, as if she, too, were waiting. Saw Lynn Cooper when he came off the ship, too, Dad. Do you remember, Lynn? This was his first cruise. Tad's eyes sparkled. He says there's nothing like it, that rocket life. They stopped on Venus, you know, and then did a reconnaissance in toward the Mercury orbit before they came back, almost five years away from Earth. They've got a stack of reports as big as an almanac for printing. And Len, you know how scrawny he was? He's put on muscle now. Looks great. Tad put down his fork. A subtle change in his voice, his hand trembling. We had a long talk, Dad. Len says, Len Cooper's a fool. George Barlow's voice snapped irritably. He hasn't got all his marbles, a kid like that. All the potential in the world, brains, opportunity, and what does he do with it? Shoots it into rockets. First cruise, huh? It isn't his last by a long shot. Those rocket boys aren't stupid. They know it takes a good cruise to teach a youngster his way around out there. He can't begin to work for his wages until the second cruise, or the third, and then it's too late to come back. Tad fiddled with his fork, his eyes down. The room was silent. Even Florence sat tense, startled by the outburst. George sat glumly. That was stupid, he thought. Inexcusably stupid. You'll have to face it someday. You know that. Now? Maybe. Oh, Lord, not now. Maybe tomorrow. But what could you say? What if it is now? His hand trembled as he fumbled awkwardly for his pipe. Where were the words, the phrases, the arguments? So long rehearsed, so sensible, so fatherly. Dad? His fingers were like ice on the pipe bowl. Not tomorrow, then. Now. Dad? Yes, Tad. The boy looked straight at his father, his voice very low. I'm going, Dad he said. I'm going with it. The chill widened in George Barlow's stomach, spreading into his legs and chest. He heard his wife's startled gasp and the chill deepened. He searched for words and no words came. How long now had he prepared, rehearsed? And now, nothing. He just sat there in the dead still room. Well, I never heard anything more ridiculous in all my life. Florence burst out finally. You're crazy, Tad. Plum crazy. Do you mean to sit there and say that you're going to give up college? Throw away this farm? She sat the cream pitcher down with a thump. It's out of the question. You just can't mean it. Tad wriggled uneasily. I do mean it, Mom. The Star King is signing up crew tomorrow. They have places for four novices this time. They'll take me. I know they will. I... I asked this afternoon. I want to go. George Barlow gripped the edge of the table, fighting for control. Don't be silly, boy, he said finally, his voice tight. You're no rocket man. You don't know what you're saying. 
His hands trembled. Space is no place for a fellow like you. You belong here, studying, working, not hopping around space like a common tramp. He tamped tobacco into his pipe bowl with an air of finality. Every boy nowadays thinks about going to space, I know. The fleets are growing larger, taking more and more boys. But the smart ones stay home. Tad's voice was low and quiet, more deadly firm than George had ever heard it. You don't understand, Dad. I know you don't like it. I know you think it's foolish not to finish college. You hate to see me leave home, but you don't understand. He looked up, his boyish face pale under deep summer tan. I can't explain it, Dad. Ever since I was little, since I saw my first rocket shooting up into the sky toward the stars, I knew I had to go too, sometime. He shook his head helplessly. It's what I've wanted all my life, Dad. I've got to go. But the farm, son. Florence was almost in tears. Doesn't that mean anything to you? Your family's been here for a hundred years, Tad. It's yours, as soon as you're ready to farm it. Don't you care about it after all these years? You know I care, Mom. The boy avoided her tearful eyes, ran a hand through his hair. You know I like the place, and I feel awful running out after all the work you and Dad and the men have put in, building it up. But I couldn't make a go of it. I don't want to be earthbound, tied down to a piece of land all my life. His mother's face was suddenly very, very tired. Oh, you fool, she said, her voice bitter. You don't know how you'll long for green grass again. Her face flared red in anger. You barely started to shave, and you want to go to space. Well, it's nonsense. You can't do it. That's final. Tell him, George. Tell him why he can't go. Tell him why. Florence. She stopped short, eyes wide. George, I'm sorry. His voice was sharp, urgent. I think maybe Tad and I ought to talk this out ourselves. I'm sorry, George. Florence Barlow rose silently. She began clearing the table, her eyes brimming. Tad's face was troubled. I wish you wouldn't make a fuss, Dad. I suppose it's a surprise to you both. George smiled sourly. Hardly. We've been around a while, Tad. We saw Len Cooper go, and a half dozen like him. We knew you'd get the bug sooner or later. But you've got to understand why we can't allow it. The room was silent except for the faint rustling of the breeze through the curtains. You don't know what you're walking into, Tad. None of you boys really know. You only see one side of the picture, the excitement and adventure. I know it's a thrilling picture, but the thrill wears off, and then you have the long, dull days of waiting, sitting, always waiting, with nothing to see but the bulkhead and a dozen men cramped into impossible tight quarters without any room to move around. You don't know how you get to hate those men, how you'd wish you could be alone for just a little while, how you'd long for privacy. And you don't realize the danger, not the exciting, bravado kind of danger that you read about, but the live, horrible danger of depending for your life on a little sliver of metal. So many things can go wrong, and any one of them means you're through. Not a brave death, son nor a heroic death, just a very lonely death where you freeze and starve and feel the life choke out of you. There are so many ways to die in space, such horrible ways, so easily, and there isn't any reward worth the risk. It's all risk, and you have nothing for it. A few days of glory when you're back home, and then you're off again. Once you go, you're gone. You'll never come back. Only the lucky ones come back. You'll be in space till it kills you. But the colonies, Dad, Mars Mountain, Player's Folly, Ironstone, they're all going concerns. They need men, lots of men, with ideas, men who aren't afraid of work. The colonies. George Barlow's voice rose angrily, his control wearing thin. Why the colonies? What glory can you see in working a lifetime to squeeze a living out of Mars rock? Scraping and fighting, squeezing every last drop of water, 
every possible inch of topsoil to dig up enough to keep barely alive, and then dying thirty years before your time. What can you see in that? Or Venus, where you sweat and waste away, until the fungus gets into your lungs and blood, and you finally just go to sleep forever. You're crazy, Tad. You can't do it. Tad shuffled his feet, his eyes downcast. I knew you wouldn't understand. I can't explain it, Dad. I don't know the words, but I've got to go. Even if you don't... George's face flushed in exasperation. Now look, just listen a minute. I understand perfectly. I just... You don't understand! The boy's eyes blazed in sudden anger. His voice was bitter. How could you understand? You've been nothing but a slogging dirt farmer all your life. How could you understand why I'd want to go to the stars? What do you know about Mars or Venus? You've never been there. George Barlow sat stiff, as though he had been struck. The room was tense, and he heard the boy breathing across the room. Then you give me no choice, he said finally, his voice suddenly tired and barely audible. I'm your father. I forbid you to go. There was a long, silent moment. Then, I'm sorry, Dad. I'm going anyway. George Barlow lay in bed, breathing quietly. The room was close, the air stuffy and humid. He heard his wife's steady breathing, peaceful now, after sobbing herself to sleep. And somehow, deep within him, he seemed to hear the steady pom-pom-pom of spaceship engines. Deep, throaty, thrilling, throbbing, vibrating, calling. He rose quietly and walked to the window. He heard Snuffy stir herself, heard her claws scrabbling on the bare farmhouse floor, and felt her warm muzzle firm and comforting in his hand. Then he heard nothing but the buzzing of cicadas, the quiet night sounds of the farm, smelled the cool, hearty odor of hay and clover, heard the occasional uneasy stomping of cattle in the barn. And still, deep in his mind, he heard older sounds, more familiar sounds, sounds tinged with fear, horror, hate, desperation. He shook his head, trying to forget. But there was excitement there, too, that intangible, overpowering thrill of the wanderlust. Memories flooded back into his mind, memories he had thought long ago blotted out and forgotten. The rich thrill of excitement as the last seconds crowded in close, with the strap cutting a deep welt across his chest, the muffled roar, the powerful sledgehammer blow, driving his stomach and legs down like lead, then easing, easing gently into no pressure, then less than no pressure. The exhilarating, wonder-filled vision of the earth rushing away, dwindling into a mottled patchwork, still dwindling. Oh, he understood all right. He knew what tugged at his son's heels. He knew the consuming thrill, the insatiable hunger to reach higher and higher, to seek out unknown places. He knew the wonder of stepping on another land, an alien land, the thrill of watching two moons creep softly over a reddish horizon. He knew the deep, rich thrill of pushing the frontier outward until the sun winked coldly like another star. Memories flooded his mind, and he remembered too well the insistent tug of the wanderlust at his heels, the call of the open road, the call of space. And he knew that, try as he would, no earthbound answer would ever drive it away. Yes, he understood. But deep in his heart, he felt the coldness, the pain and agony, the sense of bitter loss. He was one of the lucky. He had come back. Tad would never come back. The odds were too great. There were too few of the lucky. And it was better not to be one of the lucky. Better to die out there, forgotten, unmourned. Maybe he should have told the boy while he was young, tried to teach him, to make him understand. Perhaps he'd been wrong to conceal it all these years, to lie to Tad, to make Florence conceal too. Perhaps Tad should have been told. 
But even knowing that someday the wanderlust would come, he knew he couldn't have told him. Better to conceal, to wait for the contempt, wait to hear the words, short, bitter words. How could you ever understand? You've never been there. George felt the perspiration trickled down his neck. How could he explain the things he had hardly dared think about himself? The fear, the bitterness, the horror. Tad would be sleeping now, peacefully in his room, his bag half-packed on the dresser, dreaming dreams of wonder in his sleep, and never dreaming for an instant of the terror, the pain, never knowing how hard a taskmaster the wanderlust could be, what terrible fees it could exact. He knew he couldn't fight it. He had known since Tad was born that it would be useless. For the young saw only what they wanted to see, and suddenly George was fumbling in his dresser drawer, frantically searching for the small oblong box, rushing before he changed his mind. His hands closed on the small container, and its contents were cold between his fingers. And then he was in Tad's room, quietly, seeking the bag, half-packed, a few meager clothes, a few meager memories to go away with a hopeful heart. He fumbled in the bag, and suddenly the memories closed in on George Barlow, and he was living again the horrible moments, the rumbling, jolting thunder in the bowels of the ship, the frantic scrambling down the dark passageways, the men, fear-crazed and tumbling over each other in freefall, the gleaming white-hot of the atomic fires gone wild, the screams of agony, the crashing, fiery groping through oven-like chambers, the twisting, wrenching of controls, fighting to stay alive, fighting in blazing agony, fire burning to the bottom of his soul. The little metal disc slipped into the boy's bag, down between a pair of pants and a book, a thin metal disc of pure gold, a simple symbol, with simple words, to George L. Barlow, for heroism in space. He dropped the disc into the boy's bag and stumbled back to his room. He sat in the silence, stroking old Snuffy's soft muzzle, sat in darkness, eternal since that hour of terror, as tears streamed down scarred cheeks from his sightless eyes. Wanderlust by Alan E. Norse. You can buy our short science fiction stories on many websites, but you will always find the lowest price at LostSciFi.com. Please visit LostSciFi.com and get your favorite vintage sci-fi for less. Next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, Personnel Incorporated bragged that they could supply a man for any job. Maxwell doubted this, needing a space pilot for the first lunar trip. Now, if he had just asked for a lunatic, that's next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast. <laughs>